0: I invite you to turn into a Bible, to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 23 and we'll go through the end of the chapter this morning. So here Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, what a gift to us, and we pray now that you would reach in to each one of us, you would take hold of what the hands and the words of men cannot touch, you would grab a hold of that and you yourself would shape and fashion, you would form, you would cause to come alive perhaps, even this morning. You would turn those who are lost away from sin and to faith in Jesus Christ. And also pray, Lord, for those that have believed. Oh Lord, help us to have a very public faith. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we heard this back at the beginning of Galatians chapter 3. I believe it was in verse 8. In you, Abraham, ultimately Christ, in you shall all the nations be blessed. You're under a curse. Christ is going to come into the world. He's going to live a sinless life. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to become a curse for you so that He can bring the blessing of God, the promises of God to you. In you, Christ, shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel in Genesis shorthand. God said it. Scripture says it. Moses wrote it. And Paul has needed to explain it. talked to a brother recently who testified about a church in China as being next door to heaven. Note that I did not say a Chinese church, but a church in China. Where what was so heavenly about this church was its unity amid so much diversity. It was a church of nations situated geographically in China, a church of nations that was centered on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I wonder, what would prevent a church from at least having the heart and the will to imitate that? Well, there is the reality of the coffee bean. If you like coffee... Coffee beans, they get their flavor from their native soils, just plant them, and they just suck it all in, right? That's what they get their flavor from. And just as it is with the coffee beans, so too also intentionally evangelical churches. And in many cases, as to that gospel-centered diversity that we're talking about, that will be a somewhat limiting factor in the makeup of a local church. Not every church, we admit, is in Abu Dhabi. Not every church is in Boston. Not every church is in a more collegiate area like Greater Clemson. But then Paul discerns something else here. It's not a demographics issue. It's a spiritual issue. Why is Paul needing to write these things to these churches in Galatia? The answer is because of sin. <laughs> because of sin in us, which has no problem misusing the Bible to create a religion of man-centered merit over against Christ-centered grace. The church can drift away. They can slowly drift away from the sufficiency of Scripture. It's the beginning of Galatians 3. They can slowly drift away from the storyline of Scripture. That's the next little bit there in Galatians 3. And as they do that, they can slowly begin to desert the one and only gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They lose sight of the fact that the sufficiency of faith in Jesus while reducing the way of salvation to one, one way at the same time makes that salvation available to every person no different and on the same basis as it was for you and for me. In you shall all the nations be blessed. And as you do know the storyline of Scripture, do you know what happened just before God preached that gospel to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? All those nations gathered together to steal away God's glory and God's heaven, if they could, by human sin and human Ingenuity. Sound familiar? Galatians. And what was God's response to what happens at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? Genesis 12.3, that was his response. God preached the gospel into their error, same as Paul is now preaching the gospel into the error that is being taught in Galatia not by brick and mortar, not by your towers of merit, whatever they are, but by faith in my Christ and His cross, you, whoever you are, whatever you are, may be a part of my one eternal family. There is not a gospel for the Jewish person, and then another one for the Gentile. There is not one gospel for the wealthy person, and then another gospel for the poor. There's not one gospel for the worthy, however you want to characterize worth. And then another gospel for the really bad people. There's not one gospel for men, and then another gospel for women. There's one gospel for all peoples. Okay. So let's try to get Paul's mind on this in three steps. Step one, in verses 23 to 24. The law, as temporary guardian, promoted justification. How so? By faith. Alone. And this is where we have to learn, again, to read the Bible, not just in isolated passages, but as a unified story. And I say that because in verse 23, if you'll look there, Paul says, now, okay, he's starting, he's moving ahead, he's progressing in his argument. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. And as we've been paying attention to Galatians so far, you hear that it might sound rather backwards. Why is that? It's because Paul's entire argument so far has hinged on this truth. That before the law came, Abraham was justified by faith. Justifying faith pre-existed Mosaic law. But here, verse 23, Paul now says, before faith came, the law held us captive. That seems like a misstep in his argument. So what's the deal? The deal is this. Now, Paul's talking about faith as an epoch or as an age or a stage in the grand story of the Bible. He's talking about faith as the penultimate phase in what's called salvation history. In fact, we're going to see he's talking about the time that you and I are living in right now. In God's plan of redemption, you and I live in the age of faith in the Christ, not that is coming, He is coming, but He's also come once. We're living in that age. And Paul has told us that doesn't mean faith didn't exist before. That it was non-existent until the advent of Christ. Remember, Abraham, 430 years prior to the Mosaic Law, he believed faith existed before the law. Okay, Abraham believed God. Habakkuk lived by faith before Christ came as did so many others. And so, this is where we get to learn our Bibles better. Their faith, Abraham and Moses and Habakkuk, even right on up to John the Baptist's faith, was faith in seed. Faith in seed. It was still justifying faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as Righteousness. So still a justifying faith, but it was faith in a promise. It was faith in grace that was still future in front of them. It was faith in what God would do. It was faith in a Christ that as yet was without a face. That's some of the significance for what it's worth in John the Baptist's famous point. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What He's doing there is He is putting together the promise with a person. Here he is. And moving forward then, faith in seed and the law with it gives way to faith in full flower. There he is. We see him. So it matured to faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Of Nazareth. More than we know, you and I are blessed to live when and as we do. We exist in the matured age of personal faith in Jesus, the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And as that's what Paul's talking about now, faith. He's able to speak of the law as being prior to faith, prior to the onset, that is, of this age. And as he does, he focuses again on why then the law? Why then the law? What was its purpose? How did it function while faith in seed? Abraham believed God, was counted in him as righteousness, while faith in seed progressed through the storyline of the Bible, to faith in full flower. Faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave Himself for us. How did the law function? And the guiding answer comes at the end of verse 24. The law was not added to prod us into spiritual self-confidence or reliance or righteousness. No one, Paul's already said in Galatians, no one is justified by the law. And he says we know this. As Christians, we know this. No one's justified by the law. The law was added not to justify sinners, but that again, into verse 24, we might be justified by faith. So God has always justified the ungodly by faith. Always. So the law then, what of it? Paul calls it a guardian in verse 24. He calls it a guardian with an expiration date, by the way. And of course, there's all sorts of ways historically to understand exactly what's meant by that, which is why it's always a wise practice to let the text speak for itself. And as we do that, the text tells us that the Mosaic Law Covenant as temporary guardian taught sinners young in the story of redemption living in the age of promise and expectation it taught sinners you are behind bars. You're under an awful inescapable Power, at least in your own strength. You're enslaved to this dominating principle called sin. You're under it. You can't get out from under it. Neither you, yourself, nor I, the law can give you life. Can set you free indeed. Or declare you to be righteous before God. So the law's great purpose, by its rules, which we could not keep, by its so many sacrifices over and over and over again, which is preached to us, this is not atone, by its terrors, which we could never avoid, as sinners under its microscope, its great purpose was to make every soul desperate for the coming Christ. It was to throw us into a dungeon, if you will, of self-despair so that we would come to our senses and we would see with our souls our only hope Is in the Lord. Saddled with spiritual death and inability, why not try Genesis 15, verse 6? Why not, like Abraham, to be counted righteous? Why not just believe God? The law was added and acted as it did, he says, in the verse 24, in order that we might be justified or declared righteous in God's sight by faith. If you've been with us here in Galatians at this point, I trust I don't have to tell you how contrary that is to what is being taught by the false teachers in these churches. But also then, how contrary that is to how you and I are tempted to believe and live as Christians. Even if it's not by the law, are we not often tempted to live by the principle of the law? Do you wake up and go, praise God, the righteous shall live by faith. Or do you more or less live your life? The righteous shall live by doing. You live by doing. If you do that, I want you to hear that is a prison from which Jesus has set you free. It's odd, isn't it? that we would like the dungeon of giant despair. I mean, we say we don't, of course, but then we make our way back to it as if the dungeon is our home and not a dungeon, and as if we're slaves under the law instead of sons that Jesus has set free. I've seen it a lot and known it quite a bit in myself as well. We take our our sins and our our moral failures and we twist them together and put some sharp edges on them and we turn it into a cat of nine to just flay our backs wide open. Though God has forgiven our sins, we have a hard time forgiving ourselves or others. Our confessed hardness. Oh Lord, you know from day to day I'm so hard in my heart. We take that and we turn it into a hammer. Our doing or not doing. Whatever the doing may be. We don't do it the way that it needs to be done, when it needs to be done, or we think that it needs to be done, that becomes the seminal and authoritative commentary on our spiritual condition. Our justification is waffling up and down because of how we live our lives. In full cooperation with Satan's operations, we forget grace. We lose sight of the cross. We adopt the law, or at least the principle of the law, in our lives, and we take that hammer, and we take that cat of nine, and we bludgeon our souls almost to death, and we say afterwards, Thank you, Lord, may I have another. When all the while, as Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress discovered in that dungeon, the key to get out of the dungeon was just sitting right here in his chest pocket. And the key is the gospel. And you just forgot it was there. Have you forgotten it's there? Like him, church, Jesus has set you free. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Our guilt was very great. So great that the Son of God had to come into the world and die on a cross to atone for it. Our sin and our guilt was very great, but His grace, infinitely greater still. We do not live under the law anymore. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us to be in us and animate us. So please, this morning, because I know some of you are weary and heavy laden. Just hear Jesus again as He does every hour, calling you in to rest. I'm gentle. I'm gentle. The law is not. But I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me. I will give you rest. Okay. You're justified by faith. The law as temporary guardian promotes justification by faith. That's step one. Step two, and shorter. Faith coming full in Jesus is sufficient. (laughs) Is sufficient for being a justified child of God. And this right here is really all Paul's labor In Galatians, this is what He wants you to lay to heart one Sunday after the next, and everywhere in between. It's that against the perpetuity or the ongoing nature of the Mosaic Law Covenant, faith has now come because Christ has now come. With the advent of Jesus, the age of faith has dawned. Or, to put it in educational terms, I was trying to explain this to one of my kids because we have our daddy days on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday, and I'm trying to explain to them Galatians 3, 23 to 29 in salvation history and all these kinds of things. So I'm trying to explain this to one of my kids, and they're like, so in salvation history, it's like you have first grade, and then you have second grade, and then you have third grade, and then you go all the way up, right? And I was like, not really. It's more like you have elementary school, and then you have detention." And then you have graduation, if that makes any sense at all. When God's Son came in the flesh, God's plan of salvation graduated out of its elementary school and out of its detention center, the law. And, in one sense, so did everybody. Now, that's not to say everybody is free from sin's power, or the law's prison, or death's sting. Not at all. I repeat, not at all. But it does mean, if you would be free from those things, God has made the way absolutely clear now. Christ has come. Christ has lived. Christ has suffered. Christ has died. Christ has risen from the dead. Christ has ascended into heaven. Jesus is on His throne. He has now poured out His Spirit. He's building His church. He's creating His family. Today, as Paul says, is the day of salvation. So if you would be justified, forgiven of your sins, and counted righteous, and then adopted into the family of God, a child of God, make no mistake about it, it will be, into verse 26, through Faith head of verse twenty six in Christ Jesus. So Paul's sword is very sharp here against any iteration of Judaizing do this and live faith. Not only does it mistake the function of the law. But that kind of thinking misses the graduation ceremony. It misses this massive shift in the redemptive age. It misinterprets God's plan of redemption. It misses the significance of, guess what? It's almost Advent. It misses that. Though there was never a time that the law regenerated a soul or justified a soul, There was a time, there was a time when it identified God's people, Israel. There was a time when whether they truly were or were not, the circumcised adherent of Moses was considered a son of God. But when Christ came, And the requirement of a circumcised heart came full. That time-sensitive application of the law expired. So, now, to go back to it for your sonship, to go back to Moses for your being a daughter of God, is like Israel getting pulled out, getting redeemed out of Egypt, and then getting into the waters and being like, I don't like this very much. I want to go back to Egypt. Same thing. It's like breathing the air of resurrection freedom only to prefer the whippings of a holy warden because of your sins. It's like saying, you know what? I don't know, that Christ really has come. I don't know that Jesus really is the promised one. Has the new covenant really been ratified? What he did on the cross wasn't actually enough. So we got to stick with Moses. And if you don't stick with Moses, well, you are disowned, you are illegitimate, you are orphaned, you're outside the family. And this is exactly what some so called believers in Jesus had really messed up in John chapter 8. Do you remember that? What are they saying? We've never been enslaved to anybody. Jesus, we're Abraham's children. No, you're not, Jesus said. Not really. Not in the most needful way. You're not. You want to know how I know you're not? Because you can't stand me. If you were a child of Abraham, really, if you were a child of God at heart, you would love me and you would believe in me because I came from God. But as it is, all you really want to do is kill me. And they pick up stones. Not all Israel is Israel. What Jesus is exposing is that in the age of promise fulfilled, which his advent began, to be a child of God, you ready? To be a child of God, you only had to be born again. Good job, Lydia. Born again. The family crest and seal was reduced to its one eternal essential union. Union to the Son of God through faith. In you, Christ, shall all the nations be blessed. So the exclusivity of faith in Christ makes adoption available to all who believe in Him. That's always been the plan. It was to plant all the saving promises of God in Christ so that they could be accessed no other way than by faith in Jesus. And therefore, friends, being a child of God was never finally about meeting the Mosaic standard as if you could ever do that. No. It was always about believing in Christ. Which preaches to all peoples whether or not they have the slightest Israelite gene or notion of Moses. Only do that. Only believe in Christ and Him crucified and God will welcome you as a justified, fully justified member of His forever family. Faith in Jesus is enough. It suffices. So, I know you all have been waiting for this. What about baptism? What do we do with that? The law, step one, As temporary guardian, promoted justification by faith. Step two, faith coming full in Christ suffices for being a justified child of God. Step three, baptism. Publicizing that faith makes those children, key word, visible heirs. That's why at least at this church we argue for what we call believers baptism as prerequisite to church membership and the family meal that we call the Lord's supper because I say this with as much convictional charity as I possibly can that is most clearly what the bible teaches I hope you heard it and how I laid it out. But we can't get into baptism and leave its Galatians context behind. The integrity of the text is what matters most. And so it might seem odd that in a book that's arguing for justification by faith alone, such that it cancels circumcision, for instance, as a part-time justifier, illegitimately so, And as a spiritual identifier, legitimately so, all of a sudden we stumble upon baptism. Almost out of the blue. Verse 27. Doesn't that defeat the purpose, Paul? If believer's baptism is prerequisite to church membership, doesn't that combat the very truth for which Paul's been arguing that we are justified by faith alone? By the fact that Paul brings it up in verse 27. Like, pay attention now. By the fact that he brings it up in verse 27, not to retire it with circumcision as now insignificant, but as integral to the Christian life. As integrating into the Christian family, you're all sons, you're all daughters, by faith, integrating into the Christian family, the textual answer must be no. Between the sufficiency of faith and the significance of baptism, Paul finds no inconsistency or contradiction at all. Now, Can we elevate something like baptism to a significance that it doesn't have? Absolutely. And when we do that, we have trod into the territory of the Galatian heresy. So we need to be very careful and we need to be very clear. And We just start here. Is Paul even talking about water baptism in verse 27? Shouldn't we understand him to be emphasizing here spirit baptism? Baptism into Christ. Union with Christ. New birth. Spiritual resurrection. And I am thrilled to say absolutely. There's no reading our passage without seeing the effect of saving grace in the soul everywhere. It's about the age of salvation that's marked by union with Jesus through faith. The whole passage is about you in Christ, which only lends support to baptism as believers' baptism. And so, as a Baptist, I'm kind of thrilled to say, yeah, it's about Spirit baptism. But here's the thing. In Paul's writings, and indeed the rest of the New Testament, the ideas of spirit baptism and water baptism, though very distinct, are assumed also to be indivisible. By the word baptism, or baptized, or baptizing, almost universally, both of those things are understood. The sign, baptism, and the thing signified, new birth, new heart, they go together. They are not the same, but the New Testament so links them that to speak of that inner reality is to assume the outer sign. Okay? So, something else that needs clearing. Christianity today has become so individualistic and singly existential that an ordinance of Christ, like baptism, for His gathered church has almost lost its biblical significance entirely. So, as in my case, I was converted when I was 18, and then I was baptized Six years later. Six years later. And all the while, we're thinking, because we've been told, my personal verbal profession of faith is enough, is sufficient. And you know what? That's true. Your personal faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient, listen now, for justification. There's not a word about baptism, for instance, in Romans chapter 10. This is what Paul says in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Because with the heart one believes and is justified. Right. And with the mouth then, one confesses and is saved. So we can say and rejoice, the believing thief on the cross who was never baptized is in heaven. So there you go. Not a word about it. But maybe because Paul's already written about it in Romans chapter 6. It's just that, whereas in Romans 10, Paul's talking about justification. In Romans 6, he's talking about identification of the justified. Identification of believers in Jesus. He's talking about their visibility. So... While that verbal expression or profession of faith in Jesus is absolutely 100% Galatians, sufficient to save you by itself, it also falls short of what the New Testament says is sufficient to identify you as one of the saved. The law covenant of Moses had identifiers like circumcision. And the new covenant has identifiers also. So we need to get away quickly from this notion that because a thing isn't first order, because a thing isn't justifying, it's nothing at all to be too serious about. Paul disagrees in verse 27. So, listen to verse 27 very carefully. He's continuing on the sufficiency of faith in Christ for creating this family of God. And as he does that, he says, For as many of you, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Did you hear that? How do we, the church and the world, Know that you, whether you're a non Israelite or an Israelite who loves Jesus, how do we know that you are a true son or daughter of God? Well, I made a profession of faith. That's not what the New Testament teaches. How do we know you've put on Christ? And how have you put on Christ? By being baptized into Christ. So, speaking of clear, Paul can't be clearer. It's only as many of you as were baptized into Christ who have put on Christ. Put on Christ. Who have gone public who have become visible followers of Jesus. Now, to be honest with you, maybe we hear that and we go, I don't like that scripture very much. But what Paul's getting at is, it really matters that your faith in Christ goes public. And it's in baptism. That Christ in you goes public in the context of God's church family. And Jesus cares about that. Who wasn't edified last week by Gavin's faith going public? The way the New Testament talks about it going public. To be honest with you, Jesus is not overly fond of bushels covering over the candles that he's lit to be seen and added to his family of lights. Which runs us into our close. Where Christ has been put on in baptism, an amazing statement has been made by the one baptized. We are all one in Christ Jesus. In this family of faith, no one is more significant than any other on the basis of ethnicity or social status or gender. There is, verse 28, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. Now we have to be careful there, don't we? We have to be so careful there. Because as is plainly clear from Paul's, you know, he wrote other things than Galatians. So we have to understand what else he wrote. So it's being put in not just a Galatians context, but a Pauline canon context. You do that, you're going to find that he's not meaning here to level real aspects of human identity. Some better, some not as great. So context is always king. And contextually, he means... Oh, I hope you're so ready for this. He means that walking among you, Christ's churches, should be like walking in another A new world. A world where Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, (laughs) and the woman of Samaria, stand side by side and sing with all their heart to the Lamb who was slain for both of them. New world. And Philemon, the free man, and Onesimus, the slave, serve with equal, justified standing before God on the same elder board. And a Lydia, who could never be circumcised, and would have always been sort of outside the covenant, and was like to be thought of inferior worth than a Luke, could be equally valued in Jesus Christ, not just for the worth she always had, but for the status they now shared through faith in Jesus. And so the church should be a family where above all, we all show Jesus. Jesus. Dominant identity. And it's as we realize our inheritance, our inheritance, like eternal inheritance, is owing to nothing about you and me. Man, woman, Jew, Greek, slave, free, whatever it is. That inheritance is owing to nothing about me, but only to Christ and Him crucified for me that we find a bond of equivalence that makes grace visible. It makes the gospel visible. It makes Christ himself visible. You want to know what a church is supposed to be? It's supposed to be a display of the gospel of grace in human communities. I am a sinner, saved by grace through faith, in Jesus alone says before God, Jesus is our only boast. And the most vital thing about us is that we belong to Him. The most vital thing about us is that we are Christians. It's as J.I. Packer used to do. People would ask him, J.I., tell us about yourself. And uh, he would say, well, most essentially, I must say, I imagine that I am a sinner saved by grace, (laughs) and so on. (laughs) Oh, dear ones. To be an heir of God. None of the identities that dictate so much value in the world Hold any value before God. What does is this, which baptism makes public. Are you Christ's? Are you Christ's? If you are Christ's, verse 29, then you are Abraham's offspring. Then you are heirs according to promise. And so you can sleep this afternoon in heavenly peace. Let me remind you what all that means. It means that through faith in Christ, you, whatever else you are, whatever else may be true about you, you are a forgiven person. You are a person that God has declared and counted righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. You are an heir of the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, you're an heir of the new birth. You're an heir of sure growth in the Christian life. You're an heir of real everlasting hope. You're a child of God with eternal life to live as part of Christ's family. Isn't that amazing? Now then, friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this morning that nothing prevents you from becoming one besides your own unwillingness to believe the truth. Today is the day of salvation. If you'd ever get out of this prison of sin. The way is now very clear. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the call on you is just to rely on Him to bring you, to reconcile you to God as one of His own. Won't you rely on Him right now? Or maybe you have believed. Maybe you have believed. You believe, praise Jesus. What now? Well, I I would urge you on the basis of this passage to let that faith go public. Or, let's say that you have been baptized. Your faith has gone public. But are you covenanted then to His visible family? If not, I would encourage you, consider that today. But all in all, Here's Paul's take-home. That if you are Christ's, it's enough. It's enough. If you're Christ's, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, child, if you're Christ's, you're an heir. You are an heir according to promise. By His all-sufficient grace, You absolutely are, 100%, and on into eternity, a child of God. Isn't that amazing? Let's take it to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us here. And we ask now that you would grant your spirit and his ministry to drive it home into our souls in a way that changes every single one of us. Oh, that Christ would find His own this morning and take over (laughs) and animate the very center of a soul. And for those who have believed, oh Lord, please help us to see just how much we need to move from all the things that we might be placing our hope and our identity in, just be moved squarely, centrally, on the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for His glory. Amen.